podcast one. Okay, are you recording? Hey team, welcome along to episode 116 of the Howie Games, part A, featuring Brian Lara. Yep, Brian Lara. How do you like them apples? That's the leg side, and it's in the air, but he'll be at the 101 and look for two. So Brian Lara brings up his third consecutive century. 82 balls, making it the third fastest ever by a West Indian. It is not every day you get to sit down and talk cricket and life with the only man in Test cricket history ever to score 400. This, for me, being a huge cricket fan, was a really, really special couple of hours, and I hope it is for you guys as well. Funny, actually, a bit of background on how this one came about. Brian, out of the blue, sent me a really, really kind message on social media commenting on a little video I had posted of the big penguin having a hit in the nets. Fair to say the penguin and I were pretty pumped when we received it. Next day at work, I mentioned this to the great Adam Gilchrist, and Gilly, being Gilly, immediately jumped on the phone, rang Brian and asked him if he'd like to come on the Howie Games. The next day, we recorded the episode. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, I guess you're pretty big when people are singing songs about you. As you all hear in this episode, Brian actually wanted to prepare for the chat, and that says a lot about the way he approached his cricket. He left absolutely no stone unturned. From growing up as one of 11, 11 children to his record-break performances, leadership lessons, and some of the best advice for young people looking to excel that I've ever heard, I'm absolutely pumped with this episode. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by Brian sends out some pretty cool stuff on social media so you should give him a follow. His posts are really cool. You can follow him on the gram, on Instagram, at Brian Lara Official, that's at Brian Lara Official, or on Twitter at simply at Brian Lara. Now, just before we roll, thank you so, so much for all the kind messages a lot of people have sent me via email and social media at markhoward03 about the last episode where Gilly asked the questions and I was the guest. I was really unsure about it. However, I was really touched by your kindness and your enthusiasm for the episode and I loved how many people related to a few of the travel stories we rolled out and people started sending me their travel stories, which is really cool. Not a bad idea for a podcast. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes Time now for the captivating story of Brian Charles Lara TCOCCAM TC, that's the Trinity Cross The highest of the national awards of Trinidad and Tobago The OCC is the Order of the Caribbean Community And the AM, that's an honorary member of the Order of Australia What a legend Alrighty, let's go so when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I. Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion well, this is a thrill for both me and the audience of the Howie Games, one of the greatest cricketers of the generation that I've watched, one of the greatest players to ever play the game. Brian Charles Lara joins us on the Howie Games. It's come across very quickly, this happening. Been a lot of excitement in my house. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you going? I'm good, Howie. How are you doing? I am very, very well. This will go to air out uh, in a couple of weeks after you've got out of quarantine, but you're spending two weeks in quarantine now, mate. What have you found the challenges? Um, it's a bit tough, but I've done it a couple of times. I mean, I've done it in India before the IPL. I've done it in, in Barbados and a couple other areas. So it's not, it's not that hard. I think that I use uh, this time really and truly just sort of reflect, get some alone time. Um, when you live a life like myself, where you're always in demand, it's always good when 
the most that anybody can do is give you a phone call or send you a text message. And, and I mean, you can even stay away from those things. So for me, it's, it's not a bad experience. And um, I've learned a little bit about cooking, which is good. And um, yeah, it's not bad at all. If you haven't listened to Brian's player profile, you need to because he actually took us on a quick uh, cooking tour. Hey, you mentioned life with a profile. What's it like being known pretty much everywhere you go? How do you deal with it? Obviously, it's a tremendous honour and it's a massive privilege, but how do you deal with every time you walk into a room, people look and turn and say, that's Brian Lara? Well, it's not bad. I mean, it'll be worse if you walk in a, in a, in a room with a group of cricketers and no one says anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from a very early age, when you're growing up, you know, playing school cricket, one of the things that you want to do after you score 100 is buy or get your dad to buy newspapers the next day to see if you're in the back page. So I think that if any sportsman or sportswoman tell you that they don't enjoy that adulation, I think they'd be lying. I think it's a part of the whole uh, project, the part of the whole uh, lifestyle that you live. And um, sometimes it, be- it could become annoying, especially if you want to spend uh, good quality time, say with your your family, your daughters, or your son. Then sometimes you know it could be a little bit of a a, a niggle. But I think it's uh, it's been great. I I enjoy it. Um, I don't know what I'll do if I had social media back uh, 25 years ago. It would have been even crazier. But um, it's been just a, a special run, and I have no, I have no serious problems with it. Before we get into the story of your life. You, among some other cricketers, did something really, really special for Victorians and Australians in February. It was one of my greatest thrills in broadcasting when the bushfire match was played at the Junction over in Melbourne. Um, Wazing was there, who's been on the show. Satchin was there, a lot of Australian greats, and you were there. It's a strange question to ask you, but do you understand the love that Victorians had for you guys after you did that in a time of real need for Victorians and Australians? Because it was a tremendous thing you all did. Yeah, it was, it was great. First of all, I was kind of surprised. I heard about the match and I saw the list of um, players that may be coming. I didn't see my name, so I said, wow, that's crazy. And uh, fortunately, a few days later, I got a call. I think I was in Dubai at the time, so it made it much easier uh, for me to get to Australia. But, um, you know, you sit back at home or wherever in uh, the months of... Uh, November. No, I'm not sure if I'm calling the right months. November, December, January, where no, spot on are uh, just raging, and you see what's going on. You see um, wildlife being destroyed, people's homes being destroyed, and um, Australia is a very uh, it's very close to me. I've got a great relation relationship with the country, great relationship with the people, and it was not even a second thought to get out here. And um, you know, we all have our little problems everywhere in the world but uh, Australia I felt for the country at that point in time and coming out here to play a game um, was tremendous I know that a majority of it uh, was in Victoria uh, we were supposed to play in Sydney but rain curtailed that match but it was great to see all the great names as well playing in that game it's just an awesome experience brilliant well thank done, you Sachin Sach. we appreciate it oh this time Lara winds up and clears everything I'm not sure how long since you'd had a hit before that, but 30 retired off 11 deliveries, a couple of maximums as they call it these days. You smoke the ball. Is it fun still getting out there and having a hit? Yeah, most definitely. Um, the occasional games. I, I think um, I remember getting to Melbourne and I called uh, Ricky Ponting for a game of golf. Mm-hmm. And he was more interested in getting into the nets to practice. <laughs> and we had a couple sessions, uh, put the bowling machine on 80, 85 uh, miles an hour and um, just got it really, really going. So it was, it was just amazing, that preparation, anticipation to play a cricket game. I'm not going to fall out of bed and look to find a cricket game, but if it falls in my lap, like that charity game that time, definitely it's, it's a great buzz to be back in the field. A lot of people wouldn't realise, Brian, you mentioned Australia. I know you spend a lot of time here. You were given an ordinary membership of the Order of Australia back in 2009 because you've done so much in this country, you spend so much time in this country. As a man from the Caribbean, what does it mean to be made an honorary member of the Order of Australia? It's just a, it's a great um, honour and privilege and, and you feel very humble. I mean, this is a country that's, I don't know, the exact distance, 12, 14,000 mm. miles away. Yes, you have uh, uh, 
gone to the country, you've played cricket, you've been competitive against their, their countrymen. And um, to be recognized in such a way is, uh, is just unbelievable. And I, um, for me and for all West Indians, um, I think we share in that uh, connection, connection made through such an award. I remember um, receiving it. Um, I still got the medal, of course, and um, I feel very, very close to this country. Every time there's an opportunity to come here, I don't, no, there's no refusing. A lot of people won't have had the opportunity to travel to the Caribbean. As I said in the player profile, I've been there a couple of times for the CPL. I uh, haven't been to Trinidad, unfortunately. I was in Guyana, Jamaica, St. Kitts, uh, and a couple of other places. What is life like in the Caribbean and Trinidad at the moment with everything that's going on in the world? It's been a really, really difficult year. How is the West Indies travelling through the COVID outbreak? Uh, it's tough. I mean, the beautiful beaches are still there. There are a lot of pina coladas and, and <laughs> what for a lot of people. Um, most of the islands are built on tourism. So and there are no tourists coming to the Caribbean. So it's a bit uh, tough for the islands like Barbados and St. Lucia, Jamaica, uh, who are highly dependent on, on that influx of tourism. Trinidad and Tobago is a bit lucky. We've got some oil and gas, and that's been our main uh, GDP. But um, yeah, it's, it's a place where um, we are hoping that we could snap out of this as quickly as possible. Uh, one of the islands of actually Barbados, they've uh, brought in a 12-month stay where you can actually travel to Barbados and sort of spend 12 months there. Because if you're there for two weeks and you turn up with COVID, you can end up in a in yeah. a facility, a two weeks holiday. So I thought that was very smart of them. Um, uh, we are trying to cope with it uh, at our best. And listening to the prime ministers around the Caribbean, um, they are suffering and they're hoping, as I said, that um, we can find a solution very quickly. Uh, vaccination, as you know, would be uh, sent to some of the major countries before it ends up in the Caribbean. So we're hoping that that will work as well. Yeah, I hope so. Um Frequent listeners to this show, Brian, will know that I have two kids that I have a chat to about the guest, and then they come up with their own questions, Brian. So you now get my daughter, who is just turned 11. Her name is Sky, but her nickname is The Pickle. So are you ready for the question from The Pickle? <laughs> sure. Hi, Mr. Lara Pickle here. We are so excited about having you on the podcast. Anyway, a little while ago, we had Michael Holding on the show, and we asked him, where his favourite places in Jamaica are to, uh, to go to. But what I want to know is where are the best places to go in Trinidad and Tobago? And I have a recommendation for you. I know you love Australia, so I think you should visit Turquoise Bay in Western Australia. Bye. There you go. So you got a travel tip and she wants a travel tip. That's nice of you, Pickle. Um, Trinidad and Tobago, it's... First of all, not one of the tourist islands, and maybe that's a plus, uh, very mountainous. Uh, when you get to Trinidad and Tobago, everyone treats you like they're your friend, like you went to school with them. And a lot of people that visit love that sort of approach. I mean, you can sit on a beach in Barbados and next to you is another Englishman or, or mm -hmm. another, everybody is sort of servicing you. But I think Trinidad and Tobago, you need to visit uh, the mountainous areas. The drive to the beach uh, is unbelievable. And uh, we've got great uh, birds as well. We've got a bird sanctuary. And uh, first and foremost, or oh, the most important thing, is definitely the food. I think the food is something that everyone enjoys in Trinidad and Tobago. Okay. I hope that answers you, Pickle. It answers it perfectly. Talking about Trinidad, mate, let's start having a chat about you and your early years. Tell me, firstly, a bit about your family background and your family history. Yeah, well, uh, I come from a family of uh, 11, seven boys and four girls. We had 11? Own, yeah, I can see the look in your eyes. We had our own cricket. Wow. Yeah, and um, three-bedroom house in a village uh, about 25 minutes outside a city called uh, Cantaro Village, Santa Cruz. And um, I spent uh, most of my early life uh, running around people's properties, stealing oranges, mangoes, <laughs> and doing all these things that little boys do. Um, but it's very special. I mean, if you look at it, you know, I'm in a bedroom with six, six boys, you know, we're having fun. Weston is playing Australia in Australia, 1976. I mean, all there with our little transistor radio, listening to the game at 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> you know, dad pushes the door and everybody goes into a little bit of a snow. Everybody's a, until 
we can hear his radio in his <laughs> listening to the same match. So, I mean, it was great fun just being a young kid in such a big family. It sounds like a reasonably free life. Obviously, you know, what was, what was dinner like when you, when you came home at the end of the day's activities? My mum cooked for everyone. Did large, she? Large pots, everyone. No one was spared. I mean, sometimes I would come home full of uh, fruits in my stomach and I'd be forced to eat as well. So um, if it's one thing, my dad, who started as a laborer, worked really, really hard at an agricultural station to make sure that his kids had whatever it was necessary. He made the sacrifices. And uh, if it's one thing we are very grateful for as a huge family is um, the effort that he made. My mom was a housewife. Um, she made sure that home was fine. But um, it's just been a, a very special. My, my parents are no longer with us for quite some time, but all my siblings are still healthy and alive. Did your mom or your dad play cricket? Uh, no, but my dad sort of lived by curiosity through his sons. He loved cricket. And as a little boy, he actually uh, organized uh, the village league. So I'll go down and I'll watch as a little kid. All my brothers are older than I am. And I felt that um, that last effort he made with me, because my brothers weren't too very, they weren't very good. Right. But I think uh, he really and truly made a lot of sacrifice to, to make sure that I got what was necessary for me to play. So what are your first memories of cricket? Uh, coconut branch uh, shaped into a bat by my brother. Uh, street cricket. Uh, cricket by myself in the garage, throwing the ball against the wall and hitting it. Um, one of the things I know for a fact why I'm not bad at finding um, feel, uh, finding the gaps was I used to actually put 11 plant pots you know, in my garage and I have to beat them to score runs. And um, it was just a, a sport that you'd want to play. And every dad wants you to play because if it's one uh, team or group of players that were very popular in the Caribbean, it was the cricketers. We were the best team in the world at the time. And every father wanted their son to become a West Indian cricketer. So, I mean, I had to push. I had the bigger brothers. Um, I was knocked about in the streets. I feel that played a very important part in, in me getting tougher and mentally and physically. And, um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a lot of fun as a kid. What was it about the game that grabbed you, Brian, that's, you know, led to a 45-year love affair? <laughs> I think... Um, First of all, I, you know, I have to say, uh, and listening to um, my brothers or even anybody in the village at the time, that I had the talent. So I had to say that I had the talent. I also played uh, football. I also played table tennis. I played both for my country, actually, up until under 14. But just the, the whole affair during the dry season, which is January to June for cricket, when West Indies arrive in the Caribbean. And I remember that I watched my first game at the Queen's Park Oval when I was about 11. And back in those days, test cricket, you had to leave home at 5 a.m. in the morning to get a seat. I mean, today you can walk in and you can mm. pick one. But back in the day, it was, it was just the most precious thing uh, to be a part of a test match. And just, you know, holding the fence, looking at Andy Roberts bowling or Colin Croft or Michael Holding. I mean, you, you felt it. You know, it was in the air. And um, I used to attract a lot of attention because lunchtime I used to have my own game. You know, so obviously I, I, I wanted to be nothing else but a West Indian cricketer. Well, you'd have your own game sort of in the grandstand. Yeah, in the grass you have your own game. Uh, we weren't allowed in the field now like all the youngsters allowed in the field where you have um, that amazing um, uh, youth cricket going on. But anywhere you can find a little space where someone could chuck a ball and you can bowl and you're going to have spectators for sure. You know, it's going to be good. Are you still good at table tennis now? Yeah, still got a table tennis. Um, I continued because I felt that um, it played a very important part in my hand-eye coordination. And uh, mm -hmm. I used that a lot before um, test matches. I get to a uh, tennis association, table tennis association, and I'll get my game going because for me, the, that, that really and truly helped my game. And who was your hero when you'd go to the cricket or when you were listening on the radio with your brothers? And I love that story because I can so relate to it. Who did you want to be growing up, Brian? Roy Fredericks. Um, Roy Fredericks, left-handed batsman like myself, long sleeve. He, he was not a very tall guy, and um, I was an opening batsman as well as a kid. Fredericks. Great shot. No thought there of scooping that down to fine leg where Underwood was waiting. He hit that beautifully. 
So he was someone who I really and truly sort of fashioned my game um, towards. But as I grew up and I got a little bit older, a little bit more sensible, Greenwich for his technique, Destiny's for his resilience, Viv Richards for his whole aura and the way how he dominated things, borderline arrogance. Uh, so I try to take everybody and take something out of their game and put it into mine. So I, I felt that uh, I learned a lot from every single batsman during that period of time. And as a junior cricketer, I was doing some work getting ready for the test matches, Australia versus India. And you look at the Indian top six, and if you do some research, they've all done something ridiculous as a 12-year-old or 13. I think I was looking at Prithvi Shaw, and he'd made like 515 in an under-14s game. Was a young Brian dominant? Did you have runs of big scores where it was like, wow, this guy could be a future cricketer? Well, I didn't think uh, we had the opportunity to bat for long periods because, you know, it was either 40 overs, uh, 30 overs. When we got to under 19, it was a Friday evening, all of Saturday. Um, but the fact that I played under 14, under 16 and under 19 at the same time, you know, I, I knew that I, I had the ability to go on. Um, but I, I taught India as well as a 14-year-old schoolboy. Um, that, again, was a big eye-opener. Uh, for me, but there was nothing really, um, I mean, topping the batting average or the aggregate was, was was sort of normal, but nothing that was that extraordinary. You're talking about Sachin Tendulkar and Vinod Kambley's partnership, you mm. know, nothing like that. But I, I think my first double century in cricket was actually at the Sydney Cricket Ground in, a, in the test match. Well, it's a good place to do it. Just on that, so you, you were 14 touring India with a group of what, under what? On the 19s. And what happened was, <laughs> what, it was 40 kids selected, so I knew I didn't have a chance. But um, they just kept dropping out. A lot of the kids that were selected, their dad actually played for the West Indies and maybe knew what India was like in the 50s and 60s. So these kids keep dropping out. And we had to sell barbecue tickets, and my dad was given 20. At the end of it, he sold 200 barbecue tickets. <laughs> So if they, if they wanted to leave me out because of my cricket, they couldn't leave me out because my dad was really instrumental in, in raising funds. But um, it was just an unbelievable experience. And of, of course, you would know it was not a first class uh, hotel or it was, as, you know, you've got to really be able to, to handle stuff like that. And I've seen, I saw some of my uh, fellow schoolmates crying. And we were Christmas Day, we were on in an airport as you know, they don't celebrate Christmas much there. We were at a delayed flight. And things that we accustomed to at Christmas, we weren't having it. But it was a wonderful experience being there. Did you make any runs in the under-19s as a 14-year-old in India? That's right. Oh, yeah, I got, yeah, I got runs. I, got, um, I, I would even venture to say I might have scored the most runs in that, in that um, wow. series. But uh, three test matches. Um, there are a couple of players that might have just played for India one or two games. Um, of course, they were 17, 18 at the time, but uh, uh, it was something that uh, I believe that really and truly grew my game. You know, understanding that competition away from just school cricket to international uh, players my age group or even older. So I recall it all the time in my memories. Back to Brian in a second. Next up on the Howie Games. I'm not actually sure how to tell you guys this, but this is the guest, the one guest we've hoped to get on the show since day one. This is it for me. In fact, I don't even know if I can push on with the podcast after this guest because this is the top of the mountain for me. This is the guest. Now, long-term listeners may know who I'm talking about. I'll tell you what, there's not enough mystery in the world these days. I'll give you a tiny taste. If you figure it out, well done. If not, you'll have to wait till next Thursday. Pineapple on pizza. No. Really? No, no, it's not for pizza, man. But it's been nice having you on the show anyway, and good to see you again. Sweet. <laughs> did you figure it out? Hmm. If you did, well done, and you'll realise just how pumped I am about next week. Alrighty, let's get back to Brian. You mentioned your father very, very fondly a few times and the influence he had he had on you as, as a person and as a cricketer. Did he get to see, you said he'd passed away, and I'm sorry about that with your mum as well. Did he get to see you play for the West Indies or not? Uh, no, he didn't. And it, it went like this. Uh, we India was in the West Indies 1989, and they were playing against uh, on the 23. 
and I got a hundred against them, the Kapil Delves and Ravi Shastri and these guys. And I got back to my job as a, a rum salesman. And <laughs> I got a call from my boss and he said, your dad's on the phone. And my dad answered, the, uh, well, I answered the phone and he said, did you hear the team? I said, no. He said, you're on the team, you're on the team. And my boss gave me a case of rum. I took it up to my village and my dad already had all his friends there celebrating. Hmm. And uh, that test match, that I got selected for was actually in Trinidad and Tobago, so I didn't have to travel anyway. And the team arrived, and I was left out. I was expecting that. Um, I replaced someone, but obviously the great players of the time, we just, you know, we were on top of India as well, so they weren't going to change a, a winning team. And on the first evening, after the first day's play, he asked me for some tickets. It was a Friday evening, so his friends could come on Saturday, Sunday. And Clive Lloyd, the manager, gave me a, a nice bunch of tickets. I handed it to him. And unfortunately, he passed away that night. I was, uh, I was not at home. I was at the hotel. So he didn't get to see me play, but my brothers and sisters said that he at least uh, acknowledged the fact that uh, I was on the team. Um, but what was very special about that occasion was back in those days, they had that rest day in the middle of the test match. And that was the day we buried my dad. And the entire West Indies team in the Burgundy Blazer came up to this small little village in Santa Cruz and uh, paid respect for the new teammate's dad, which I believe for me, he couldn't choose a better time to go away. He, he couldn't choose a better time just to have Sir Vivian Richards, Clive Lloyd, all these men. Uh, uh, I think it, it, it is where, you know, it's testimony to the effort and the sacrifices he made for me. And um, I felt that that was a very special thing everybody could have done. Funerals can be really sad events. They can be really um, joyful celebrations. It depends what culture you're in. What what was the reception like on a sad day in your village when these larger-than-life heroes strode in in their West Indian blazers? My dad, my dad was actually left in his casket, and every, <laughs> <laughs> everybody stopped the bus. You got to understand this is something that uh, never happened again. And, um, yeah, I remembered it. When, when the bus turned up, I just saw everybody sort of just gravitated towards all these great players. And tough luck, uh, Mr. Lara. This is, this, is, this, is, this is unbelievable. But, um, yeah, I mean, back in those days, the team was repaired. We were, we, you know, the best team in the world. Everybody lived and, and breathed a West Indies cricket. And it was very proud. You know, the, the West Indies team made us very, very proud. Um, to be West Indians and to be acknowledged around the world. Our diaspora in England and in America always tuned in and felt very proud, held their heads high every time we won. So your father passed away. When did you make that step? Was it Test cricket or one-day international cricket you played first for your country? I played, uh, my first game was a one-day game in Pakistan and um, against Wazim and Wakar and <laughs> And I remember, I remember it very vividly because I was batting at number four. We were chasing a total and we were none down for 120, but the run rate and the, it was getting very tight. So Desmond Haynes signaled inside to um, get Logie in before Brian. I was carted to bat before him. And as he said that, a wicket fell and Logie was halfway putting on his pads. And I said, I can still go if you want. He said, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. So he went out and Waka came in and next ball, his stumps were flying. Vakar gain karenge Logi ko. I walked in on a hat-trick and the 60,000 people in Karachi and I don't know what they were shouting, but um, the first ball I actually did not see. It hit the wicketkeeper's glove and he was throwing it to Gully when I looked back. Hat-trick par hain. And you can see that this is a hat trick. You can see that this is a hat trick. You can see that this is a hat And I said, no, this is, this is on real pace. And um, yeah, but that was, that was my debut match for the West Indies. And then I played. Uh, I took some time, a couple of years, before I got my second game. I don't want to make you talk your way through some of your amazing innings because I'm sure you've done it plenty of times. 
but I want to talk to you about what's required to be able to do what you've done at the top level. Let's start with Sydney and your first Test 100, um, 277. How did life change for you after that innings, Brian, when did you believe before that you could do it at the top level or was that right, I can do this? Brian Lara, the new batsman. 23 years of age, an average of 30. Well, it was just amazing. I, I have to say but that was uh, pretty much a watershed moment in my life because, um, yes, I got onto the team. I had maybe three or four um, fifth days in the four or five test matches that I played at the time. Uh, none I went on to score 100. So obviously there's that little bit of doubt. You might be maintaining your play, but there's that doubt of, you know, when are you going to break, uh, you know, that line? When are you going to cross it and get 100? A single needed by Brian Lara now. He's on 99, facing Shane Warne. Yeah. There it is. Great moment. He's a very, very good young player. Much appreciated by his teammates. And I can guarantee you, as mentioned, there will be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people around the Caribbean who will be delighted Brian Lara has made his first Test match century. And um, that was uh, that was just unbelievable because um, whenever the West Indies toured Australia, we would win 4-1. But the one Test match we would lose was the Sydney Test match. Yeah. Talking about back in the days with the great players. So Australia, Allen Borders, Australia, Drew the first test. Not they drew, we drew it because, you know, they almost won the test and they beat us very comprehensively in Melbourne. Now, if Sydney goes to Australia, that's two up with two to go. And uh, they posted 500 plus runs and uh, we were left there on a turning track with Shane Warne and Greg Matthews. And um, being from Trinidad and Tobago, which is a South Caribbean, Guyana and Trinidad and Tobago produces the most spinners. Um, and I, I love spin bowling. So I felt very, very comfortable from very early. And just going back to exactly what Rohan Kanai said, and obviously Rohan Kanai was protecting the position of, we have to draw this game. Once again, that placement that we've seen so often from Brian Lara takes him to within one run of 200. Has he got a bat on it? That's the question. Brian Lara didn't give the uh, umpire much opportunity to signal buys there. And when he got about five metres from the crease, he started waving his bat to the West Indies crowd. Not only a very fine batsman, but also a very smart one. And I just felt that um, that innings still today, it definitely shaped my career, shaped my life. And it's maybe one of the best innings I've ever played in my entire career. But it was just uh, an unbelievable experience. He's 23 short of 300 runs. Yeah. Oops, he's oh. in trouble. Oh. He's back, he's gone! What a tragic end. Got sent back, got wrong-footed, a good throw, a good take. The end of a fine, fine innings. Brian Lara run out for 277. Well, after making 277 runs, you don't usually find a batsman being disappointed, but I'm sure Brian Lara certainly is disappointed of the fact that he was run out in such a manner. It was a brilliant innings. Couldn't have asked for much more than what he did. Got to the wicket with West Indies in trouble, and he certainly played very, very well. There's a story that someone told me that I don't know if it's true. A fellow that played against you, and he was trying to tell me that you'd had a meal <laughs> the night before that, possibly with... Desmond Haynes? Yeah, I did, I did. And that's, that's a fact. What happened, what I found was that, you know, um, I grew up in a house with 11, uh, <laughs> 10 siblings, and we all shared everything, and we all, you know, willing to make sacrifices. But I felt that for a senior player, he never actually invited me out to dinner, never even bought me, never even say, welcome, young man. So one evening, he surprised me, that, you know, in Sydney, and he said, you know, would you like to go to dinner? I said, of course, you know, I, I'd save a little bit of meal money, but, it's, you know, I'd love to. And we got downstairs and lo and behold, it was an Australian family that was taking him to dinner and <laughs> being dragged along. We went to this Chinese restaurant and I was just introduced to crispy duck and pancakes. 
And I saw it on the menu and I ordered it immediately. And he looked at me and he said, you are not ordering duck on this table. Okay, <laughs> we have to bat tomorrow. No duck on this table. And having my duck and the, the, the man who was paying the bill said, Brian, have your duck. And he turned his back and I ate my duck and we went out to play the next day and he got out for 23. And whilst he was coming off the field, I was going on to the field. And he looked at me and he said, good luck with that duck you had last night. <laughs> <laughs> 2.77 later, we were having Adelaide, we had duck at Perth, we had duck, ev- we had duck everywhere. His, his scores never improved. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great story. Okay. I hope you don't mind me saying preparation must have been massive for you and I just want to tell people this podcast came about in a very quick time. Adam Gilchrist kindly asked you on my behalf if you'd come on the show and I was thrilled when you said straight away yes. And you you sent me an email and a message saying, can you just lay out generally what we're going to talk about because you want to be prepared for it. And I said to you, I emailed you back saying, wow, I'm tremendously impressed by that. I haven't had that before. And then you sent me some responses back and, and other areas to talk about. And I thought to myself, wow, this is a man who prepares and must prepare in life. Was that the key to your cricket, Brian? Because it blew me away that you did that, that you take the time to do that, to try and make what we're doing now the best possible result. Yeah, I think it's um, preparation is everything. And, um, you know, I put my ha- I, I got my hands onto a book where, uh, Michael Jordan book, and he said that he practiced so hard, right, that um, whenever he got into the match, it was like cruise control. And I felt that that was something that I can take away, that I needed to put myself under pressure every single time in practice, make my mistakes in practice, and, you know, pretty much get prepared um, for when I get out into the middle. So for me, that is the, the most important thing any young cricketer, male and female, can do. You've got to practice harder than you actually, and actually what you expect out in the middle. And if you do that, then, you know, I think things would be, uh, things can go your way. So a 375, a 501, a 400, we'll talk about those a little bit in a moment. But what is the mental preparation required beforehand and during to do that and bat for two, two and a bit days of test cricket? What's involved in that, Brian? Because, well, there's not many people that can answer that question. Well, I think um, it's a situation where um, you have to understand what an innings entail. You know, a lot of people put a focus on a 50 or they put a focus on a 100. Um, You know, I I mean, I'm sure I can say because it's been said many times before, a player like Mark Waugh, who was maybe one of the most stylish batsmen in the world, you felt that every time he got to 100, you look, you you know, you stand out possibility of getting him out. And for me... um, and I, I, we said it before, Rowan Kanai's uh, words to me, hit home. Looking at the scoreboard at the Sydney Cricket Ground where names were coming down and my name was going up, I fell in love with that um, aspect of the game. So I never actually wanted to spend time in the pavilion. I wanted to get out to bat as quickly as possible. And then I wanted to stay there till, as we call it in the Caribbean, the cows come home. Until the captain decides that, you know, it's time to, it's time to declare. And um, I just fell in love with that. So the, the scores of the double hundreds and the triples, I mean, they came just from the love of batting. They came from assessing time, assessing situation, and getting to those targets and remaining there to give yourself the opportunity. So what is it like to stand above everyone else? We go to 1994. Well, actually, after day two, I read about this. So Sir Garfield Sobers, a great West Indian cricketer, held the record on 365? Yes, he did. So after day two, you're 320 not out. Does Brian Lara sleep that night or does he think about going where no one's been before? Like it's an incredible situation. I did not have a wink of sleep. I got... <laughs> I had a roommate, uh, Junior Murray was at, at the time. I really can't tell you, I can't say it here, what he put on television. Uh, back in those game we, days, we had the cassette. But I was there up till about four or five o'clock. And then a friend of mine, I called a friend of mine and he picked me up uh, as soon as it was getting uh, light. And we went to play nine holes of golf. I just started golf. So we got in nine holes and I got back for breakfast. So, so I yeah, on, the, on the morning of the test match, you played nine on, holes of golf? On the morning of the test match. I, you know, 
I couldn't watch any more of what Junior was watching. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I think I know where you're going, right? So better, better, I, you know, I get in and, and I got a bit of golf in, relaxed a bit, had some breakfast and um, head to the cricket ground. Inevitable it may have seemed, but it was a nervous Brian Lara who walked out on the third day with 46 runs needed to break the world record held by his hero, Sir Garfield Sobers. The world's greatest all-rounder had set his mark of 365 not out in Kingston, Jamaica on March the 1st, 1958 against Pakistan. And he may well have gone past 400 if a pitch invasion hadn't abandoned play for the day. They must be mixed emotions for Sobers. And mounting tension for Brian Lara. Beautiful cover drive. Through for four. 365, he's equal Gary Sobers, 365 not out, Brian Lara, crowd are going wild, Sobers is down on the boundary edge waiting for Lara to score his next run. And when you play the pull shot to pass Sobers, he's gone for a pull and there it is. Brian Lara has done it, the ball rockets into the boundary fence. The new world record holder is Brian Charles Lara of Trinidad and Tobago. What a moment for Trinidad and Tobago and West Indies cricket. And I think the most beautiful thing, I was watching it this morning, Brian, was the fact that he was there. And as it happens in the Caribbean, people stream on and amidst all that noise and maelstrom, Sir Garfield Sobers comes out and embraces you. That that. It's got to be an incredible moment for a young man. What a moment indeed. Sir Gary Sobers there, waiting for the jubilant crowd to disperse from around and engulfed Brian Lara. Well, Gary Sobers set his record on March the 1st, 1958. And today at 11.46, Brian Lara has passed that record. What a moment for him. What a moment for West Indies cricket. A great moment for Brian Lara. A marvellous moment for Gary Sobers to be here to witness it. Uh, unbelievable. And uh, what was nice about it is that Sir Garfield Sobers was maybe one of the few uh, former cricketers uh, or cricket aficionados that actually believed in my talent as a teenager. And, um, you know, a lot of people felt that I was too small. Um, I went to play in the Sir Garfield Sobers school tournament. And, um, you know, we built a relationship from there. Obviously, that's sort of a father-son relationship. And um, whenever I saw him, I sort of seek advice. So to have him there, um, it was just uh, tremendous. And, um, you know, even he has mentioned it on any occasion that uh, he felt that I had the ability to do so. Um, I didn't have the opportunity to see Sagafi, so was play cricket. But um, I, what I understand is, you know, he was just unbelievable as an all-rounder. You speak to anybody that's seen uh, cricket for generations would say that he is definitely the greatest all-rounder that ever played. So to be there with him, uh, surpassing his score, uh, was just a, a great feeling. So that was April 1994. And then on the June the 6th of 1994, you're playing for Warwickshire and you made 501, Brian. I had a look at this. 474 minutes, 427 balls, 308 of them in boundaries, 10 sixes, 62 fours. How crazy did life get in that three or four month period where you went from being an outstanding test cricketer to a world record holder to a man that had made 500 to the fact that um, I spent some time in England at the around that time and I know you were with your mate Dwight York, the Trinidad and Tobago tornado as the papers called him. How crazy does life get at that point when you're the biggest cricketer on the planet? That it was it was it was tough, but it was also uh, an amazing um, reward for the efforts that I, I put in and the effort that my family put in. Um, I, I'll give you a little story. Um, my dad only got married after nine kids, so my sister and myself were the only two that carried the name Lara, hmm. and the rest of my family carried Eustache, my mother's name. And when they said that their, their brother and sister of, of Brian. No one believed them. So we got something called the Red House. They went into the Red House in Trinidad, the government's house, and changed their last name to Lara wow. to make everybody recognize. But it's, it was just, um, I, I would put it on as a, a wonderful reward for the efforts that I, 
that I, I put in as a as a little boy. Um, I never knew that uh, you know I can get I can actually get to that level and surpass those huge scores. But um, it just uh, showed that I think I dedicated myself. I had the discipline, and um, I was just reaping the reward. It was it was tough. Life was a different. It was totally different um, for at least those three or four months. We're trying to settle in to that sort of um, uh, status as a as a world record holder, not just one, a double world record holder was uh, was tough. And cricket at the time looked, looking back now, like it needed that injection of, uh, of fame. And, um, you know, I carried it. I carried it sometimes um, not well, but I think I learned from the experience. I was quite happy to, to have experienced that in my life. How do you mean not well? Is it just is it just too much when you go from a bloke who's grown up in a small village in the Caribbean to all of a sudden being the front page news everywhere? It, it, it must be amazing and frightening all rolled into one, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you look at even Charlie Woods at, at present, young yep. Tiger Woods, even Tiger Woods himself, you know, the videos and the, the preparation for stardom is there and you learn from a very early age. Now, you're kicking a pan in the streets or you're bowling with a lime or, or an orange and you're playing cricket, but never prepare you for that sort of scrutiny when it arrived. I mean, I moved from trying to establish myself um, as a permanent fixture in the West East team to pretty much the number one uh batsman in the world and everyone was looking in sort of my direction and um, you would know I mean if they had Instagram and social media back in those days it'd be just ridiculous so it's um when when I said that um yeah I made some mistakes of course you know it was tough um back in the day Warwickshire felt that I was shying away from feeling um you know yet I was giving them a hundred every time I walked about so they weren't very happy (laughs) but I (laughs) I felt that um you know I would never do anything differently, but I've definitely learned from my experience, good and bad ones. Two questions on the 501. You're on 497 as a massive cricket fan. Uh, how did you bring up the 500? Uh, with a boundary, but just a ball before I got struck in my head because uh, it was a guy by the name of John Morris and he bowled me a short ball. All our boys were completely shattered. They'd had a long day and, and Bain threw me the ball and said, come on, have a bowl. I said to, to the umpire, Trevor Jesty, actually, just as I came up to bowl, I said, this one could go down in history. So I ran in and, and bowled the first couple of balls, and I thought, now I can have a bouncer, I'm afraid. So I did, and it was right inside the air hole. And I swung and missed, and it hit me at the back of the head. And I was batting uh, with Keith Piper, and he said to me, do you know that this is the last over? I said, no, it's not. It's 20 overs in the last hour. He said, no, in England... After 10 overs, the umpires, if they feel there is nothing in the game, will call the game off. I say, you sure? I say, yes. The umpire actually sent me to tell you that. Oh. Step up and strike the next ball for a four. And then the next ball, he just stepped away and slammed it for four for the record. So when you go into the change rooms that night, Brian, try and take me back there. Like, like knowing England and living there myself, is it like a beer and a curry afterwards or do you just collapse exhausted? You walk into the chat, you've made 501, man. Like what happens then? Well, I think the day started, first of all, with about two men and a dog. And it ended up with maybe about five to 10,000 people there. So the dressing room and the playing field every, everywhere uh, was pretty crowded. My players were very um, ecstatic about the whole situation. I think the adrenaline level, uh, doesn't allow you to sort of sit back and think about anything else. And to be honest with you, and I suppose you know that 501 was less time than scoring uh, 375. Yeah. So, um, I wasn't that exhausted. I just, I, I personally could not understand how everything was just unfolding. It was tough. And that six-week period between April and, and June the 6th was just um, an unbelievable experience for me my cricketing career, it was just a period that I've never been able to repeat. Um, the run scoring was just uh, unbelievable. Matty Hayden went on and passed your record. 1,659 test matches have been played in test cricket. And uh, this looks like being the highest score ever scored in all those test matches. So two balls to go. And that's it. That's a great shot. Up go the arms of Matthew Hayden. That is the world record. What a performance. Then you went and passed his with a 400. 
He's got it away and that's it. That's going to be Brian Lara's 25th Test 100. There he goes. That's a 300 for Lara. He'll get there comfortably. Second triple century for Brian Lara. And is he happy? There it is. The world record has fallen once again to Brian Charles Lara of Trinidad and Tobago and the West Indies the second time in his career that he's broken this record and what a moment of history this is a repeat performance 10 years ago he set it and he's done it again at the very ground there goes the sweep there it is Perhaps the most significant single ever in the history of Test Match Cricket. Brian Charles Lara becomes the first man in the history of the game to register a score of 400. 582 deliveries, 776 minutes with 43 fours and four sixes. A remarkable human being. Were you, I can, I've got vague memories of the Adelaide Test last year when Warner was 300 plus. Were you at the ground that day? Pulls it away hard on the leg side. Times the ball well, it races out towards the rope. Incredible from David Warner. 300, a history making innings at the Oval. He loves it, the crowd loves it. David Warner. Gotcha. Oh. There it is. Past Sir Don Bradman, past Mark Taylor. He's now got the second highest for an Australian. I was there at the ground and I was quite happy. I wanted to walk on the field because I, I sensed that um, this was going to happen uh, today, that you know, that particular day. And looking at the test match and, and everything and the way the ball was uh, moving around, I knew there was never going to be a problem to get Pakistan out. So I felt that, uh, I, you know, so, just to, to be honest, I felt a little bit slighted because I, I, I felt that here's an opportunity to go beyond, you know. And, um, it would have been great for, for Australian cricket, uh, but the Australians look at things a little bit differently. So actually, I was sure that he was going to break the record only because when, he's, when he passed uh, Sir Donald Bradman, that is a position that has been very well protected. So I was kind of surprised at that. Yeah, I, I, not all Australians, because I remember in the commentary box saying ad nauseum with Fox Cricket saying, geez, I hope he gets to 400 because it would be the greatest thing in Australian cricket if you could do what Sir Garfield did with you yeah. and walked out to the middle of that oval. <laughs> Tim Payne was protecting me. That's the end of Brian Lara, Part A. Don't miss the second innings on Part B.